I would just say have a strong relationship with your loan broker and ask and make clear the things you're concerned about and make sure the bank's not going to play games with you. Because the problem is in the last week, you really have no leverage. Like you're dead. You're dead if they play that with you. It's not the mistake that matters. It's how you deal with it, what you learn from it and how you apply that lesson to your life. Welcome to Multifamily Missteps, where your host, Jerome Myers, brings on apartment investors from around the country, big and small, to share with you the lessons they wish somebody would have told them. These short episodes are designed to expedite your journey to growing a profitable apartment portfolio without all the mistakes that others have made. We're super excited that you're here. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Ari Van Gimmer in with me today. Did I get it right? You uh, got it right. That's right. <laughs> yes! Ari, I met you at Multifamily Investor Nation Summit. We were doing the thing in the Hoover chat. I was like, man, this dude is really crushing it. I wonder if I can get him on the show. And he was kind enough to accept my invitation. So super grateful to be with you, man. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to hang with us. For the listeners, they probably haven't seen your name a whole lot. So, you know, what have you been up to? What part of the country are you in? Like, give us the goods, man. Let us know who you are. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. Super excited to be here and really admire the work you're doing and the podcast. And I love, I love the focus on like learning and teachable moments versus glory stories. So yeah, uh, I'm the owner and founder of Lombard Equities Group, which is a real estate syndication company in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are focused on investing in properties here in Oakland, California, Berkeley, as well as the Pacific Northwest. So Portland and Seattle and, and looking to expand into Denver and Salt Lake City as well. I came up in the finance business. So I was an equity research analyst with a big money management firm. I worked for Goldman Sachs for about six years and then took a brief stint in venture capital before peeling off and launching my own investment company. Uh, we have about $35 million under management today and are growing. So we've you know, been in business for about 18 months at this point. So we've grown really quickly and continuing to expand aggressively in the markets we like. So super... Excited, but a lot of lot of war stories to share as well. So hopefully it can be informative for everyone. Wow. And so as a syndicator, are you taking like fund of funds in or are you raising that with retail investors one by one? Because you gave me the venture capital background. You gave me some of the other spots. So I don't know where you're pulling this from, but you're buying expensive real estate in expensive markets and you're buying a lot of it. So that's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I had a I had a pretty strong Rolodex from my my finance career. So I have a couple large family offices that invest with us, and then a bunch of uh, you know entrepreneurs and venture capitalists here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then a, a number of physicians and and kind of more standard investors here that are interested in investing in real estate. So we do a deal by deal basis right now. So when I find an opportunity, we put it under contract, and then I go to the small group of investors. And we don't do any cold solicitation or anything like that. Like our entire investor base is sort of self-perpetuating. So a lot of my investors refer their friends and other investors in. And we kind of want to keep it more of a, a club feel versus the kind of broad mass market feel. But you know, everyone has their own their own style to to go after it. And yeah, we do invest in the more expensive markets. And not not for there, there's no particular reason why except that we have we live here. We have a focus in this area, and 
I think that the real estate on the West Coast is pretty defensible from an asset standpoint. So I, I like, you know, you can say what you want about the San Francisco Bay Area, but I don't think it's going anywhere. Like I feel like it's a pretty defensible play to invest here. Same thing with Seattle, a lot of these cities and, and people are continuing to move into them at a high rate and they make it really hard to build. Like we have a massive housing shortage in all of these states. And, you know, I was just on a call yesterday where there people were asking about like, oh, should I go to Arizona? And, you know, my thesis was like, the guy, the guy said like, Arizona is great. It's growing. It's robust, but they're also massively expanding their housing stock. Right. And your, your bet on these expensive West coast markets is like, there is no housing stock increase at all. Right. So you, you can kind of foresee that you can still make money in these markets and it's a pretty defensible play. So, so more of an appreciation look than cash flow. Yeah, yeah, we're getting probably, you know, net to investors, I would say five to 8% on our deals, but they were targeting net IRRs, you know, 15, typically 15%. It's kind of the target. And so some of that is, is, is definitely appreciation, right? And that's driven by finding a deal where there's a, there's an appreciable difference between the entry rent and where I, where I think I can get the asset to, right? And so I'm not banking on, oh, we're going to get a bunch of rent increases because the market's going to go gangbusters. That's just cherry on the cake in my mind, right? The, the the play is like, let me take something where I know I can just get to here. And just getting to here drives a lot of value for the asset. And that to me is a pretty conservative play overall. So Love it. I think it's a great thesis and one that's executable in any market. Right. Even if there's a downturn, if you got high quality real estate, you're going to be okay. And that sounds like what you guys are buying. So, you know, you've grown rapidly. I assume all of the deals have went perfectly. And I mean, you're just rolling in the dough, ready to exit on everything. And that's the way it goes, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Never, never any hiccups or, or waves. It's all easy. Yeah. No, plenty of teachable moments throughout the whole thing. So I'm happy to share everything, yeah, anything and everything. I, I feel like I learned the most on my first deal about what not to do. So can we talk about yours and see if we sure. can pick up any tidbits for the listeners? Yeah. So I started investing in real estate five or six years ago. And I, I had my kind of road to Damascus conversion, like everybody else that's on your podcast and, and in the bigger pockets universe, and everyone from reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? So I read the book and I thought I was taught wrong. I'm doing it wrong. I should be buying real estate. Like what am I doing with a 401k and like putting money in the index funds over and over, right? So like everyone else. And so I finally told myself, All right, I want, I know, you know, I'm in the investments business. I know someday I'll probably want to manage investor money, but I really need to learn with my own money, make my own mistakes on my own dime before I try to go bring money in from investors. Right. So our first deal was a five unit building in Portland, Oregon. Great location. Every aspect of it was exactly like what I've been targeting and looking to do, but. Everything that could go wrong went wrong on this deal. So I'm happy to, to talk about all of it. So, but yeah, that's kind of like how I got into it and how I started. And, and, the, you know, the first deal, I also have this distinct recollection of sitting there with my wife and her saying, why do you have to buy such a big building? Like, why does it have to be a five unit building? Why can't you just buy like a, a single family home that we rent? And, you know, it's not going to be the price, you know, because again, West Coast markets are expensive. Why does it have to be so big? And I said, well, you know, I'm convinced from the research I've done and the listening I've done that we need to buy multifamily and I want to own more units. I don't want to do just one little one. And she said, it feels like an ego issue. Like you just want to buy a bigger building so you could tell people that you own a big building. I said, well, maybe, but like also I believe that it's good to own more units. And so we should, we should make the play. Right. But we, we barely had enough money to buy that first deal. 
And so that's my first, my first uh, piece of advice for anyone is to always make sure you have capital left over in the bank after you buy a deal. It's, I think it's very tempting on your first one to be like, it's going to be fine. Let's just go in. Like, it's great. Like I need to take the, I need to take the bet, but it can go wrong really quickly if you're not properly capitalized. So, you know, I emptied my bank account out to buy the deal and then stuff went wrong. So it was very tight for my family for quite a while. So that's the first piece. (laughs) So Um, make sure you're well capitalized on the backside and just having is the 10% that most banks require post close liquidity enough or you think there's more that's needed? I think 10% is good. I would say I wouldn't rely on a bank to enforce your liquidity because I know what the bank that I was with, they didn't, they didn't say to me, you need to have this much liquid. They didn't care. Right. And so that's the, the other thing. I mean, this is a hard one to control. So literally things on this deal were hard from day one, which is surprising that I stayed in the business because of this. But so two days before closing, the, the building had a lot of deferred maintenance. So two days before closing, the bank comes to me and says, you know, we're worried about all the deferred maintenance on this building. And we need you to give us $50,000 for escrow to hold until you solve all the deferred maintenance issues. And I said, hold on. This is two days before closing. My earnest money is gone, right? Everything's gone. Like we're in this deal deep. And I, I, I frankly didn't have 50,000 at that moment, right? This was a while back. And like, I was like all in on this deal. And I was thinking, I don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't understand how you can ask me that because I need that money for the for the deferred maintenance issues on the building, like you're going to take it from me. I said, well, can you at least let me use it? Draw it down for the, and they, no, no, we're going to hold it while you figure out everything with the building. And I, you know, so it was a very terrifying, I don't know that I have any advice how to avoid that except to I, like, I would have a great loan broker relationship and I would ask very much ahead of time, like, Hey, I don't want this to happen. Get ahead of this, talk to them, make sure this doesn't come up. Cause I w- didn't even expect that there was a possibility that the bank would require a holdback of money for deferred maintenance issues that they wouldn't let me use. So we finally no- negotiated them down to $15,000 instead of 50, which was still tough. I mean, still like more money than I wanted to surrender to them. And that was tough. So like, that was the next big, like, man, that is brutal. And I, I, you know, I didn't get that money back for three years. So it was like, it could have been 50 grand sitting in an account for three years while I'm trying to work through all this stuff. And I'll tell you all about everything else that happened. But I would just say, have a strong relationship with your loan broker and ask and make clear the things you're concerned about and make sure the bank's not going to play games with you. Because the problem is in the last week, you really have no leverage. Like you're dead, you're dead if they play that with you. So that was terrifying. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get the next deal done. We have developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they use our system, they create time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Multifamily Kickstart program has proven to be the fastest way to establish credibility and build a profitable apartment portfolio. Hop over to JeromeMyers.co to find out more. Was that a closing condition that they gave to you right at the ninth hour? And did they cut loan proceeds or was this more of a situation where we want you to write a check and we're going to fully fund your loan? Yeah. That they three days before closing, they said you need to write a check to the account. Then we'll do the then we'll close. We'll be done. And and I have still have right. I still have my cash in the account. I got to wire money to title to close, and they have to wire money. But then they're telling me of my 
little bit of remaining cash, you need to put 50,000 into our account or we're not going to close the deal. And, and it was an arbitrary number because they didn't have any estimates. To totally arbitrary. It. They just picked a number. Totally arbitrary. Totally arbitrary. So, so that was the, uh, yeah. They kept it for three years. I mean, that's worse than COVID reserves. What's going on? It's man? pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. I won't say the name of the bank, but I won't ever work with them again. And I'll tell you, there's a lot more to, I mean, it, it, this, this building keeps going. It's a, it's a long story. So, so then we get into it. So the biggest deferred maintenance issue on this building was there was a back deck to the building that was deteriorating and kind of falling down. It was actually a, an, a true life safety issue. Right. And so. I had estimated a cost to fix it. And I thought I had a pretty good handle on how much it was going to cost to actually fix this deck. And so we get a couple contractors to come out and look at it. And this is probably my my like number one piece of feedback on in real estate in general is the lowest price provider is not always is actually ends up being the most expensive provider in the long run. And I I made the mistake of like picking the low cost guy, right? And I was like, so we, we get like three or four contractors to come out and the contractors are giving me numbers that I didn't really like to hear because it wasn't the numbers that I, I had underwritten, right? So I, they were like, oh, it's gonna be 50 grand to fix the deck. And I was like, oh man, I thought it was gonna be like 10, like 10,000 to fix this thing. And they're like, no, dude, like it's like dry rotted. It's like, you got to take care of the whole thing. So I find a guy that's like, no, I can do it for eight. And I was like, oh, look at this guy. Like I knew it. Like all these guys are ripping me off. Like the 8,000 guy, he's the guy. So, you know, we get going and like within a week, I get a change order. And then I get another change order. And then I get another change order. And they start coming in like a hurricane till my final cost for that deck was probably $56,000, which was higher than the legitimate GCs actually quoted me in the first place. So, and then the guy didn't, and then the guy didn't do that great of a job on it. Right. So then like, so then the, the next issue was then the bank came out to inspect it, which is why I didn't get my money back for three years. And they look at it and the guy, you know, was playing bank. He was playing construction inspector, even though he was not, he was just a bank guy, but he basically said, I don't think this bank is to, to code this deck is to code and we're not going to release your money for this. And so, but that would all stem back to working with the cheapest, lowest cost provider on that project, which I ended up paying more and it was even worse. So to continue the story, so that contractor left a pipe, a down pipe open. And then lo and behold, my low, my bottom floor of the fiveplex unit started complaining of water coming into the unit. And we were trying and trying and trying to figure out where's the water coming from in the unit. And we find out that my low cost provider contractor had undone a downspout and just left it open. So that during the rainy season in Portland, which is nine months of the year, was pouring water down into the foundation, into the bottom of the building, right? So that, so when I said to him, Hey, you cost me. $5,000 now of cost to like go in and try to like opening walls, trying to figure out where the leaking is coming from. He disappeared. So I've never heard from the guy again. So that was the, my advice there is there's a lot of guys that charge a lot of money to do renovation work and everything else. And I would collect as many bids as you can. And personally, I would go like put them like lowest cost, the highest cost. And I'd probably pick someone in the middle. Like I would never pick the low cost guy anymore because I just don't, I, I think it causes way more problems than the than the short term benefit of not paying the money, and that that entire situation could have been handled by working with a more reputable and licensed contractor that actually charged fair pricing. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make as investors, and it's not just on the property like contractors, but it's with all of our services. Predictability is probably more important than price a lot of the time. And so if somebody says, hey, I'm going to be done at this time and they're actually done at that time, that's meaningful because you can plan around that. But when somebody says, oh, yeah, it'll be done or I'll get around to it and 
you're just waiting endlessly, it's when you get really frustrated and you feel captive because now yeah. you have money with this person and you don't want to go pay the other person to do the thing you pay this person to do. And it just becomes an absolute nightmare. So this, this is, this is good, man. This is gold. Keep going. You got anything else yeah. on that deal? I got, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. So, so then we, the water leaking into the basement unit causes that tenant to be unhappy, you know, go figure. And so we're trying to, we're trying to solve what's going on in the basement unit. And at the same time, the bank who's been so difficult for me says, you need to get the city to, you need to file a permit with the city and get the deck permitted. So we feel comfortable signing off on this deck. So I have two things happening. The basement unit tenant is not happy and they're asking me to get a permit done for the deck. So I go to the city to try to get a permit done for the deck. And as I'm trying to get the permit done, the city says, alert, alert, your fifth unit is not legal. It's a non-conforming basement unit. It's actually not a legal fifth unit. And so, you know, in my, in my mind at this point, right before this came out, I was thinking, boy, I really want to get rid of this bank. And we actually got a great price on the, on the property, right? It was an estate sale. It is a fantastic location building and we've done fine with it in the long run. Like it's not a home run, but we've definitely made money with the building. But at the time I was thinking, I really want to refinance this bank off because they're, they're, you know, they have all these penalties and covenants that kick in if I'm not on, on pace with my renovations and they're making my life miserable. And the, 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 the deck is fine. I had a structural engineer come out and assess it. Like everything's fine, but they're saying you need to get this thing permitted. So I go to the city to get it permitted and I find out that the basement unit is not a legal unit. Well, that gives me a lot of trouble because I have a commercial loan on the property and in order to refinance, I can either go and ask for another commercial lender to do it. But they're saying it's not a five unit building, so we're not going to lend on it. And I have a problem with a fourplex lender because then the valuation drops by like you know $200,000 on this building because I just lost a unit that's like a 1500 a month rent unit in a five cap neighborhood, right? So big trouble, big trouble. That I'm, I'm literally still three years later, I'm still, I'm still working through, I know it's like, now it's like way more than three years. I'm still working through that. We're still, I just finally got that basement unit legalized and we're having to, I had to waterproof it. I had to do all this kind of stuff. So this, I think is something that I've really like, this has been a scarring experience to find out that you bought something that was not actually what it was. And like I said, this literally everything that could go wrong went wrong on this deal. So like now I am so careful when I buy buildings to find out if the units are permitted and legal. And I literally, I was literally in contract recently on a pretty large building in Oakland. And we did this, like, I was like, I don't think that studio is a conforming studio. And everyone was like, no, it's, it's, it's legit. It's good. Like, it's good. I said, I don't, I'm not trusting anything you say because the, you know, the, the brokerage firm on that, the last deal told me that. And I, so my takeaway from this and my advice to everybody is like exhaust all resources to find out if your units are legal or not. You, you in a, in a entry level multifamily deal, like what I bought and like what a lot of people of your listeners are probably buying of like, you know, older Victorian houses that have been cut up into multiple units. It's very common for units to not be legal. And if you're not careful, you can do what I did and wind up with it. So now whenever I buy something, I exhaust like all resources to try to figure out like, is that thing legal or not? And so in some cases it's, it's hard. Like I'll tell you like this deal in Oakland we just did and this saved me, right? This experience really helped me because I hired a guy that who was like, forget like his exact titling, but there's, there's folks that are really good at liaisoning with the city. Like for a couple hundred dollars, they'll just do Expediter. a ton of research. Yeah. And expediter. Thank you. That's exactly what he was. He did an amazing job. He pulled record, like microfiche, like files back to like 1925 was like going through records and basically was like, yeah, it's not legal. Like that was, 
invaluable, right? Because if I had done that deal and I had an illegal unit, and even if the bank had been cool with it, like it was going to come out eventually and the future buyer would have docked me value. The tenant can make difficulty for you if they find out they're in a non-conforming unit because you're not even supposed to be leasing it. So, and, and some people will say, oh, it's no problem. It still makes cash flow, which is true, right? But like you don't get the equity value from it. Banks won't give you the equity value from it. And if you want to legalize it, the city can make your life miserable because then a lot of other stuff with the building needs to come to code. You got ADA compliance rules now is brutal. So like to me, like this is like a big one and we barely... Like I had a lot of help. I had to bring in a, like a like big time architecture firm in Portland to help me like navigate this process and get this thing legalized. But I would just say like exhaust all resources to find out if your units are all legal and conforming before you buy something. Love it, man. Those are big ones, man. <laughs> all of them in one deal. <laughs> it's brutal. Well, but it makes you a better investor going forward and it proves that your due diligence is, is tight. Now you were able to adjust the process. You didn't actually get hurt outside of some frustration and time on that first deal, right? Because you were able to get the other unit in a situation where it was co-conforming and that allowed you to maximize the backside. So you don't have to listen to somebody tell you, see, this was just an ego play. In fact, yeah, exactly. I actually knew what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not an ego play part, at all. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, going to help with freedom and generational wealth and all the other reasons why people get in the business. So that, man, you're a trooper. Is there anything that you could have done to avoid these things? Would have like mentorship or coaching or anything have cut this off at the past? Or you think you were just kind of doomed based on what you were buying? I, I think it was pretty evident as I look back that like, I think as I looked back, and if I had known and done the proper research, I, one could have figured out that the unit was non-conforming. Definitely, I could have not hired the cheapest contractor for the deck work. You know, I don't know that there's anything in retrospect I could have necessarily done with the, with the with the deck so or the the lender. So I think banks are willing to give you a lot more leeway and be more easy with you when you're more experienced. When it is your first deal, they're they're just hyper vigilant to mess ups because they have experience with first time investors not doing well. I'm pretty, I'm actually, you know, all said and done. I'm grateful it happened. You know, the pro, I think the problem is if I had come back, you know, cause the thing with that deal that was interesting too, is we got it tied up and then they got an all cash offer like the day after we tied it up for much higher than what we were paying for it. So if I had made a fuss about a non-conforming unit, they would have been like, okay, they, they didn't want, they didn't want to sell it to me by the end of the process. Right. Cause they were like, we have a better, we have a better buyer, like ready to go. So, you know, I'm, I guess I would say like, I'm grateful it all worked out the way it did because I got my first deal done. And I think getting your first deal done is so invaluable in general. And like people that don't get their first deal done, they never get going. Right. And so like, even though it was tough and there was a lot of like sleepless nights in the process, like I'm happy it worked out. And I, I did learn a lot and we've still made money on the deal. It's fine. It's a, it is a generational asset, right. In like probably the best location in downtown Portland. So I'm happy with it. I'm happy with how everything turned out, but it was, there's a lot as I look back that was like good, like great learning experiences. And I think you're right. Like that's where you really hone your skill in the hard stuff, right? Like what's the saying? Like a smooth, a smooth sea doesn't make a good sailor. So <laughs> well, Ari, you got skilled in your seas and you're selling on this deal and you've done plenty after that, man. So thank you so much for sharing your experience. I think the listeners got tremendous value for this one. I know I did because, you know, that, that non-conforming 
understanding code compliance, understanding, hey, you may have under budgeted, but you better not go with the cheapest contractor. Like those lessons, if you haven't done it, you have no idea. And if you're in a deal with somebody else and they make a decision that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, there's usually some experience driving that decision. So, you know, again, man, thank you so much for jumping on with me. And I look forward to continuing our relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you and have a good finish to the day. You too. To the listeners, the pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it all the way to the end. So that means you love this episode of Multifamily Missteps. I need a favor from you. The only way this show grows is if more people know about it. So do me a favor. Take a screenshot and post it on your favorite social media platform and tag me in it. Who knows? We may have you as the next guest. I look forward to sharing the episode with you next week.